it's not just that we have a shortage of housing, which we do, because uh, we really haven't built built as we should have, but it's a money problem. <laughs> you know, so a lot of these problems that we're looking at as philanthropic problems are really come down to a wealth inequity issue. And until we solve that problem, we're not really going to make an impact in some of these areas. You know, there's people who who only have like money problems. Like if they only had money, then they could solve their own problems. And then there's people who if they had money, they still going to have problems. And but you can't actually tell it just in general who only needs money and who needs more than money. So if you make sure that everybody has money, then those who only need more than money are, there's a fewer reduced population of those, and they're just much more easier, uh, you know, to find. I think that UBI could have a tremendous effect on homelessness, which has been a problem that has, you know, been a scourge for this country for, you know, my entire career. And in addition to the humanity, moving the dime on the humanity of, uh, and becoming the country we uh, aspire to be and take care of everyone. Welcome to Intrinsic, a podcast about the innate value of human beings and the motivation that drives us. I'm your host, Keiko Sono, recording from Socrates, New York. Today, we are diverging from our regular bi-weekly schedule and bringing this episode to you one week after our last one. We recorded this on February 15th to talk about the issues of affordable housing and homelessness and how universal basic income would impact them. Little did we know then that the following week, the New York State Ulster County Executive, Pat Ryan, would announce a UBI pilot. One of our guests, March Gallagher, who is the county controller, did mention about the possibility of the pilot during our conversation, so I sensed something was up. It is my pleasure to bring this episode to you as the excitement about this pilot spreads through our community with Ulster County joining the growing number of municipalities that are embracing this transformational policy. Kevin O'Connor has been RAPCO's Chief Executive Officer since 2002. RAPCO is a nonprofit organization based in Kingston, New York, which creates high quality and affordable housing. Throughout his 32 years of experience in the housing sector, he has transformed communities in the Hudson Valley through the development of supportive housing that include multi-generational, artist and homeless housing, home ownership and commercial units. Kevin serves on the board of directors of Pattern for Progress and the National Neighbor Works Association. March Gallagher is a lifelong watchdog and champion for economic and social justice. She has a long list of illustrious achievements in public and nonprofit sectors, including Ulster County's Office of Economic Development and Community Foundations of the Hudson Valley, which manages over $80 million in assets across 500 different funds. In January of 2020, she became the first woman to serve as the Ulster County Controller and has brought transparency to county finances and released audits resulting in significant savings and increase in revenue collections. Scott Santens is one of the leading advocates for universal basic income and is enormously popular among UBI supporters on social media. 
He is a founding member of the Economic Security Project, an advisor to the Universal Income Project, a founding committee member of Basic Income Action, committee member of the U.S. Basic Income Guarantee Network, and an editor for Basic Income Today, a news hub for UBI. Welcome, everyone, to Intrinsic Podcast. Today, we're going to tackle something very big. Affordable housing, homelessness, gentrification, and how transformational cash programs like universal basic income would impact them. Just a few years ago, UBI was not something most people had heard of. Thanks to Andrew Yang, who ran for president on this policy, it became somewhat of a household term. But it wasn't until the pandemic that the need for something like UBI became apparent. Just in the last week, Mitt Romney proposed a truly universal child assistance program, followed by the Democrats' version of the same. And a few days ago, Biden's press secretary was asked a question about UBI at the briefing. A truly remarkable moment. In the Hudson Valley and the Catskills of New York State, there has been a massive migration out of the city, putting a pressure on local residents, especially those with low income. Emergency assistance like enhanced unemployment and moratorium on eviction might have helped, but would a more permanent and universal program mitigate the pressure on low-income renters or exacerbate the problem? So, who wants to tackle this first? I'll jump in. Okay. Um, I don't know a tremendous amount about UBI, but I had the opportunity to hear Mayor Tubbs of Stockton, California speak. And I was at an investment conference. This is when I was the president and CEO of the Community Foundations of the Hudson Valley. And we were looking at impact investment opportunities. And so I was at a conference and he was a, he was there. It was an incredibly persuasive set of data that he shared. And really what we were drilling down to there was, what do people actually use these UBI payments for? Because I think there's like this um, image that people are gonna just you know waste this money. And in fact, in Stockton, the funds, I think it was $500 a month um, for certain families. It wasn't a huge pool. You guys may know more about this than me, but the things that people were using the funds for were incredibly important things like rent, healthcare, tuition, paying down debt, starting businesses. And I have to say, like sitting in that chair from the philanthropic perspective, which is where I was at the time, I was really intrigued and sort of became became a follower of him on Twitter and, and watching everything that they do. So that was my first introduction. I think that was 2018. And, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for it. So I just want to start there. That's a good start. Yeah, um, I guess I'll just say, too, that, I mean, the pandemic has really, I think, put this in a different perspective for for a lot of people. And it's suddenly much more real where you know, when this first happened, like immediately people started talking about getting checks out and we very quickly, um, you know, got out that first stimulus check and also boosted unemployment payments by $600 a week. And in doing so, we actually reduced poverty during a time of like mass unemployment. And we even increased the spending of, uh, two-thirds of the unemployed because that's how little they were getting paid so that $600 per week boost actually lifted them higher than their wages were uh, prior 
to losing their jobs. And the result of this, you know, was was great. I mean, that's exactly what we what we should have done and we should have kept it going. And instead we didn't. So then, you know, things got worse. And of course, too, uh, when it comes to unemployment, like that was very helpful for people who are unemployed. But we also know, too, that there are many people who um, do not qualify for unemployment, who lost their jobs or also, uh, you know, due to like their whole sectors being wiped out, but also they may have lost hours and, you know, their their incomes have been impacted in a way that they're still employed, but now they're hurting. And that's actually one third of the country is actually seeing reduced incomes right now uh, and not receiving unemployment insurance. And so, you know, we should have seen this from the beginning is like, yeah, let's get money to people. And, you know, here we are, like multiple times, there have been panics around just how many people may get evicted soon. And the response has been, well, let's just make sure that people can't be evicted. And it's like, you know, that's that's great, uh, that that's helpful, but what people really need is money that it will enable them to pay their bills, and they should have been getting that money this entire time. And so, you know, what we really need is to go back and say, hey, this payment should have been going out every month since March, and let's just get this out retroactive and say, let's make sure that people can catch up on their rents and mortgages that are behind on. And we just don't know. There's no way of knowing how many people are really like hurting right now and unable to pay their rent and behind on this. And we should just be sharing, be making sure that people have the money. And then next year, going back and say, okay, this is what you earned on your taxes. You know, this is what your earnings were during 2020, 2021. Let's tax appropriately based on that. And I, I, I hope that that's a discussion becomes more of a discussion instead of just continuing to just say, let's just not kick people out of their homes. Mart, uh, do you have the number in Osu County uh, for people who were evicted or, you know, like behind in rent? You don't have those numbers. I don't have a number. I will tell you the Ulster County Sheriff immediately when COVID happened announced that he would not be enforcing any evictions prior to the governor shutting it down. So I don't have a number uh, of people that are in that situation. I will say, though, that I'm a landlord. My family owns property in um, Saugerties, and it is dire. Uh, we are in dire straits because of this eviction moratorium. And we also have tenants who received PPP and are not paying rent. So I, there needs to be a check and balance where if you're getting federal unemployment um, on top of your regular unemployment, you should be able to make rent. Um, if you're a business, which is what I'm talking about, who received a loan to be able to pay all their bills, you should be able to pay rent <laughs> um, because what we're doing is squeezing an entire block of folks who, you know, these are not necessarily big landlords. It's mom and pop, and they're not going to be able to pay, you know, things like property tax and their mortgage. And those may not be forestalled. So, yeah, we don't have a clear picture, though, of how many people are behind in rent, what the value of rent in arrears is in Ulster County or or maybe even nationally. Yeah, I think that's a big gap. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some of us in the affordable housing um, are keeping statistics. So at Repco, we have a portfolio of over 600 units and uh, we've been very fortunate that uh, we're collecting over 90% of our rent. Approximately 40% of our tenants receive a subsidy currently. So, um, you know, we have our, all of our units have an affordable rent. Uh, not a market rent, so that's a start. 40% have a subsidy. 
you know, as Marge points out, uh, we find ourselves in this um, scenario today where we have, uh, you know, private sector, nonprofit, uh, mom and pop, all kinds of various organizations and people that own the housing. You know, I've always lamented that uh, one set of people have to own the housing that another set of people have to live in. It would be perhaps a, a better world if we all sort of owned our own. But um, and I'm, I'm very intrigued to talk about, uh, you know, uh, universal basic income and, and I've been following a little bit the discussion uh, nationally. As the pandemic hit, you know, our approach has been so income replacement first for those who can get it, unemployment insurance. Uh, second is rental assistance programs that we're administering those programs on behalf of uh, generally the federal government. It's come uh, um, the community development block grant dollars have come through the state and also through the city. And there will be more rental assistance dollars coming in stimulus. But at some point, um, we've had the eviction moratoriums at the state and federal levels. And I think we're now, uh, the moratorium is through May 31st. So we shouldn't really have anyone that's been evicted yet in the past year. And I think we've had some people that... Uh, are clearly, you know, maybe facing struggle. And I think others who, you know, there's a couple of people out there that have just simply decided they're not going to pay rent. And uh, despite perhaps having PPP or having jobs because of the eviction moratorium. So, you know, it's always a, a bit of an interesting um, situation. But going forward, you know, I think I first came about UBI with uh, the discussion of automation and the elimination of jobs in our future um, when truck driving goes away. You know, UBI seems to make a lot of sense if we can't maintain full employment and for perhaps many other reasons. I'll say one other thing, and that is, you know, we've had rental assistance, uh, the Section 8 or the Housing Choice Voucher Program since, uh, oddly enough, President Nixon, 1974, uh, when uh, the Section 8 program was uh, created. It's a federal program to provide a rental subsidy where people pay a third of their income towards their rent, a fair rent that's assessed by HUD. And uh, this program pays the balance. And uh, we are an administrator of Section 8 in both Ulster and Greene County. We have approximately 2,000 households that we assist, predominantly in uh, those are in Ulster County. Uh, they're mostly seniors or people uh, who, who are on disability. Um, we have no healthy singles on the program. But less than one in five people today who, who uh, are truly in need of rental assistance receive it. So um, it's not an entitlement. Our waiting list is generally always closed. So um, I, I think uh, looking at uh, programs that are going to provide additional support is very, very important at this time. Not to jump in with the counterbalance, but uh, we found when we tried to open our family business after you know, the initial lockdown that employees who were receiving unemployment didn't want to come back to work. They were making the same amount of money um, on unemployment with the federal and they didn't want to risk their lives for a retail job, which makes sense. You know, my partner owns Inquiring Minds bookstores in New Paltz and Saugerties. So, and I'm hearing from other businesses that they are having trouble finding people to work. So, you know, that rings a bell for me in terms of UBI. Is that going to cut into available workforce? And I think that's a question that has to be grappled with. Yeah, so I think to respond to that, first of all, um, like there's definitely anecdotes out there because there's always going to be stories on, on both sides of something. It's really interesting to see that the studies looking at 
the effect of the UI boost uh, from a macro's perspective was that there was no impact overall on employment, that people um, you know, did go back to work, you know, that was offered to. And also there was, you know, a stipulations where if people refused to go back to work, then they would lose the benefit. So there's even like that punishment perspective. <laughs> sure, but I don't want to be that landlord. We're not going to be that person. And that's also, you know, part of this too is, you know, a lot of the, there's confusion between the way basic income works and the way like unemployment works. And so the way unemployment works is, you know, you have to maintain unemployment to get the income. And so there is an incentive to not work because it doesn't combine. But then with the basic income, you receive the income regardless of whatever you do so that then when you get the employment, then your income increases. And so you don't have that disincentive that, that UI has built into it. And I say that even though, you know, you did see that on a macro perspective, you didn't see that impact. So in which case you would expect even less of an impact and more of a positive impact with UBI. Scott, I really want to look at that study because if most, most employers had the experience we did, you don't want to turn in an employee who maybe is older or might be immune compromised, who's afraid to come back to work and turn them in for collecting unemployment when you've offered them their job back. So I wonder if those experiences nationwide are coloring that number. I, I mean, we can say my experience is anecdotal, but I know many, many other businesses in the same boat. The studies that looked at this, that was the result of it. Because, of course, economists were like, what was the result of this giant $600 per week uh, boost? And it just didn't show what people expected, you know, counterintuitively. Also, I want to point out that the uh, enhanced un unemployment was $600 on top of the unemployment. So, you know, the least that we were getting in New York State was 780 a week, which is much, much larger than what you know, most universal basic income plans propose, you know, like you can't really live on $1,000 a month or $1,200 a month. So that's just the difference that I wanted to point out. Scott, one of the questions I have is um, in UBI, is there a sliding scale based on other income and or a cutoff of, uh, you know, a certain income, you don't receive it, uh, you know, we're talking now about unemployment, at a certain income and below. Um, Section 8 housing choice voucher program is a sliding scale, so you pay a third of your income and this, it pays the balance. I'm wondering if there's those, those are built into UBI or no. Yeah, so there's, there's basically two ways of going about this kind of sliding scale, and most people seem to think of it as the benefit side, so you scale what you provide people. Um, UBI doesn't vary what you provide people, but of course you can scale the tax end so that there is clawback on that end. And so, you know, Milton Friedman looked at uh, uh, the way of guaranteeing a basic income through a negative income tax, which would be, you know, the full amount for those earning zero dollars and then say a 50% clawback rate, you know, so 50%, uh, 50 cents less for every dollar earned until the point you're receiving nothing from the benefit. Whereas a comparison would be to say, well, you could do a UBI paired with a 50% flat tax and achieve the exact same outcome uh, via the clawback, via the taxation on the back end. And I think that um, this discussion is actually really pertinent to what's going on right now with like the Democrats arguing over, you know, whether we should lower the threshold uh, below the, the thresholds for the $600 so that you exclude more people 
from the $1,400 that they're planning on spending. And of course, the, the, the argument makes clear that we're using old data, especially that, you know, they're judging people's current statuses based on taxes that they filed in 2019. I think they corrected that, right? Well, are you talking about the threshold levels? Because, yeah, yeah. they decided, yeah, there was that debate, and they uh, decided to essentially keep the thresholds that they had previously. But the fact was that they were discussing lowering it um, in order to you know, target better those people in need. And that highlights that you don't actually know who are the people in need. You You think you may, but of course... You don't, because first of all, you have old data, but also even if you're saying, oh, well, someone over you know, $85,000 doesn't need any extra income or whatever, there are people in that group that that's not true for, that they have lost incomes, that they are actually, have essentially fallen through the entire safety net and they're being ignored by everything. And so UBI, this kind of universality says, let's not worry about trying to figure out who needs what right now? Let's make sure that everybody gets it. And then next year, come tax time, that's when you figure out, okay, so this is what people earned. So let's tax them based on what they earned. So then there is no leaving people out of people in need. And of course, anytime you means test something, you're going to exclude people who even are on that side of the line, which is like what Kevin mentioned about uh, Section 8, where you know one out of uh, four people one of five people who should qualify for the benefit gets the benefit. So four to five people aren't getting something that they qualify for. And of course, people are waiting. Even those people who get something are waiting perhaps like 10 years on a waiting list. It's crazy. And then also when it comes to the Section 8 voucher, you know, you can't spend that anywhere as cash. You have to be accepted by people who are accepting it as cash. So it's just not the same anyways. So yeah, UBI says, all right, let's just make sure everybody gets something and then to make sure nobody is excluded who's in need and worry about it on the back end. Mitt Romney's plan includes that universality, which is very innovative. Yeah, so his uh, goes to everyone, everyone at all, but then also he focuses on the, those earning over $400,000 on taxes next year, which is exactly how I think that we you know, should be doing it. One of the other things that comes up is... Um the extraction that our current society operates. So we are an extracting society. We're taking, people are pulling money out. And uh, so there's been discussion, say, of free college education as opposed to a lowering perhaps the cost of housing or lowering the cost of daycare or lowering the cost of college or healthcare, the, you know, food, as opposed to the income boost. Sometimes we have seen when, you know, the, the FMRs go up and, 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 and we bring more resource sometimes um, that society as it's currently structured tends to extract that uh, additional income. So, which can be also part of, you know, spending this money is also a boost too. So it's complicated, but uh, I wonder sometimes about the, the lowering uh, the cost of, of basics as well as perhaps looking on the income side. Yeah. So, um, I think that there's kind of a market failure going on with, with prices when people don't have sufficient income to pay for things. And so when it comes to, let's say, college, uh, for example, 
what we're doing is saying, well, people can't afford it. So then we give people loans and grants. And of course, it's stuff that they can only use for college. And then instead of colleges, look at this and go, well, if this income is guaranteed for college, then let's just raise the price. And then the government says, well, prices have went up. Let's raise the price. So then you know, there's, there's no competition with other kind of things going on. And so if you make sure that people actually have enough, you know, more money as a foundation, then they can decide for themselves, you know, do they want to spend that at college? Do they want to perhaps go to uh, some kind of training program? Do they want to do some apprenticeship? Do they want to do something, you know, other than college? They want to start their own business. There's less choice in society right now when it comes to college. It's almost become something that you really need to do, really to even inoculate yourself against like deaths of despair. And then you're essentially overtraining yourself for all these things, but you just need that college certificate in order to get like a job that you can get by with. And I think that's part of the problem is this kind of missing foundation that could really um, improve, you know, market signaling. And that also, I would compare that too, to housing as well. So right now, there's a lot of people who would actually prefer to be homeowners and they can't afford it. So instead they rent. And if you actually look at, um, at what happened in the experiments in the 1970s, uh, when we were testing the negative income tax that Nixon wanted to pass, homeownership rates went up uh, uh, four to six points, which was around uh, at the six point level, about 26% increase. And so that was actually really uh, surprising to the researchers because the people who were receiving the income guarantee for um, you know a matter of years knew it was temporary. So you would think that people wouldn't really take a temporary income increase and then get a mortgage with it, but they did. And so you would also expect that if people knew that they were going to get a permanent income increase, that there would even be a larger impact of people becoming homeowners instead of renters. And so if you're able to reduce the amount of people seeking rentals, then you're going to put downward pressure on those rental prices because more people become homeowners and then therefore... Hopefully, you would see uh, especially reduced pressure in high population areas. Because again, if you have a national UBI, then you're also basically introducing competition between high cost of living areas and low cost of living areas. So people would think, well, I don't have to stay in this metro area anymore. I can actually afford to live somewhere else and therefore make that money go further. And I think that's really interesting as a matter of possibly... Uh, reducing pressure in the cities and actually encouraging like a rejuvenation of like small town USA main streets and businesses where people can actually move to and start up um, businesses there like they can't right now. Isn't that what we've seen right now? People from the city, it's so cheap, just come up here, right? So we're seeing that right now. And it's, it's gone beyond just rejuvenating our small centers. It's really pricing people out. Yeah, you know, it really is interesting to look at it from that perspective to see that we're already seeing that um, taking place. Yeah, I mean, housing prices are way up over where they were a year ago and way up over five years. So we're really, we're seeing it. And I think we were seeing it even before the pandemic. I don't know, Kevin, if you agree with that, but you know, we were definitely were seeing upward pressure on pricing in this region prior to 2020. Oh, absolutely. We saw it doubling in the, uh, back in the early 2000s, uh, housing prices doubled. You know, we had the Airbnb movement that uh, has taken a lot of uh, long-term rentals out 
of the market to short-term rental and we're not taxing them the same way and different things. Interesting, I've been working for the last year and a half on promoting colleagues across the country a homeownership tax credit akin to the low-income housing tax credit. So we've had the LIHTC, which is really now the federal government's chief way of promoting affordable rental housing since the Tax Act of 86 under Ronald Reagan. And it uh, produces the most, from the government side of the equation, the most affordable rental housing. We use it all the time. It's a fairly expensive program. It involves the private sector. We haven't had the financing tools to create home ownership for a while. The costs uh, have far outstripped. Uh, but with lower interest rates today, uh, you know, people uh, in the 80% of area median income, that, that general area that we'd like to assist, uh, now they can afford mortgages of around 200000 And um, if we had a tax credit uh, for maybe a third of the cost of $300,000 homes, we could perhaps help more people uh, achieve home ownership. And, you know, we here in the Northeast, we have the oldest housing stock. We have a lot of single-family housing stock. Much of it has been taken back as rental, as investment properties, and could return. And so there is a Neighborhood Home Investment Act right now, which has some bipartisan support in Congress, and I think it has a real shot of passing. And we'd love to see some federal resource of that ilk go back towards helping to create home ownership. I think it's really interesting to to look at the way that we do uh, home assistance, and you look at tax credits, and it's like there's no uh, stigma around tax credits, even though you are assisting people into housing. And we actually spend more on the home mortgage interest deduction than we do on, you know, Section 8. And of course, Section 8 is very stigmatized. And so it's like we give housing assistance to the poor and make them feel really like crap about receiving it and make sure that, you know, we don't cover everybody. But then we we give per this tax credit to those earning over a certain amount and everyone can claim it that, you know, files or taxes. And it's actually very beneficial. It's actually disproportionately beneficial so that if you're in the, like the top 1%, you're averaging about $30,000 in assistance. And it's just kind of crazy, I think, when you look at it that way, where, you know, why is it that we're providing some form of housing assistance to the middle and the rich in a non-stigmatized, very easy way, and then to the poor in a stigmatized, not easy to qualify way, and perhaps we're waiting years to get and so I think that's a good example of something there. just we should replace those tax credits and the housing system and just make sure that you have a high enough sufficient floor universally so that people can actually more able to afford either renting or buying, be whatever that they choose. Yeah, I think it's called white privilege. That's why we, how it evolved. And uh, you're absolutely right. You know, the mortgage deduction and tax incentives that we gave for uh, mortgage and state and in the local taxes up until Ronald, or, uh, Donald Trump changed some of that for New Yorkers. But, you know, that dwarfed the HUD budget for sure. And when people would say, oh, you're doing subsidized housing, and I would often say subsidized housing. You own a home, you're, you live in subsidized housing. And you're getting a far bigger subsidy than uh, people realize. Uh, so it's very interesting. And, and I think it's obviously it's complex and uh, beyond sometimes uh, uh, I don't spend enough time in, in, in some of this, but uh, we're, we're trying to fight uh, some daily battles. I'm curious as to um, your projection of the likelihood of UBI moving forward in some localities or perhaps at the national level. 
Well, yeah, I think the uh, the child UBI is a is a great step forward. I'm, I'm I'm really hopeful that Romney's version can pass, and you would have some families getting fifteen thousand dollars a year just for the number of children that they have and and nothing else. And you know, so many Americans would be getting you know at least two hundred fifty dollars per month under this plan. And I think that would really make a difference to, for people to start receiving it and to see what it's, what a difference it makes. And to also, you know, feel that like the government sees them and is actually helping them. Like that is a direct signal. And, you know, to your point that you just mentioned that people didn't know that they were in subsidized housing. Like it's, I think that's part of the harm is that there's this invisible assistance going on to so many Americans and they just don't realize that the government is actually helping them in big ways. And so like a check is something that is very visible and apparent and you can feel that. And I think that that would make, you know, a huge difference politically speaking and also civically that people would feel that the government actually cares about them instead of just like, you know, hating on the government for for ignoring them. I wouldn't rule out a local UBI pilot here in the Hudson Valley. Well, there's one in Hudson right now. No, I I mean in Ulster. Oh. Yeah, I mean there's over there's over 30 mayors now that have joined Mayors for Guaranteed Income, so there's already, you know, 30 pilots either active or in the works. And I, I just continue f- to expect that to grow. And uh, also, I'd expect that that um, some state will be the first. And actually, Oregon could be the first state because there's the uh, people's rebate that they're working on, which would provide about um, $750 per year, like the Alaska dividend. You know, it's not like a lot, but it's something that every, every single resident in Oregon would receive. And I think that we'll see more of that as well. When you were talking about the tangibility of a check and how you know we have these kind of invisible subsidies, I think language is everything, and branding is is so important. And you know that definitely plays a role here. I think we're in a culture now where getting out of paying taxes has obviously become all the vogue, right? Um, and I kind of have this debate with my husband, like he, you know, has the, how can I get out of taxes mindset? And I always have the, it's my honor to pay taxes like a fool. But I do think that getting back to that place where we sort of champion and recognize that we're contributing to the greater good, that when you write out that tax check or when you see that money coming out of your paycheck, it's for a good purpose. You know what I mean? And sort of changing the mindset on that collective investment and using different language to describe it. Because we don't look at people who we're, I feel like there's a change in the tide right now in looking at people who are skirting taxes, right? We're having a lot more conversation about corporations that are offshoring and avoiding taxes or about people moving from one state to another for tax shopping. And it's starting to, people are starting to find it distasteful in a way that I feel like five years ago, they definitely didn't. I'd really like to see the language on that change, you know, back to somewhere where it's like, it's my honor to pay taxes. I'm supporting roads. I'm supporting schools. I feel good about it. And that's kind of why I am where I am, right? If we're not stewarding these tax dollars well, then no one's going to want to contribute to the greater good. But language is everything. There really is. If you feel that the federal government is providing nothing to you, then of course you're going to be like, well, why would I pay taxes? I'm not getting anything out of it. But as soon as you make it so that everyone feels that they're getting something, then yeah, I do think that that's going to really change the way people feel about paying taxes. Yeah. 
Growing up in Dutchess County, as I did, I, you know, I watched IBM come to town at the Kipsey and Kingston here in Fishkill, East Fishkill. And, uh, and as uh, I started in the nonprofit sector back in the late 80s, uh, IBM was pulling out, you know, closing uh, Kingston, downsizing Poughkeepsie, closing East Fishkill. And then I would watch, you know, the tax, the IDAs and, and, and the other taxing structures give, you know, some of the biggest potential deals to some of the, you know, the new people, new developments that were coming into some of these uh, shuttered factories. When I started in uh, nonprofit housing with Hudson River Housing, the IBM was closing and downsizing. We had a lot of abandoned housing stock in the city of Poughkeepsie that we got involved with. And the city was desperate for taxes. Um, they had lost uh, so much housing and jobs and, and the ancillary businesses that were supportive of IBM. And so as a nonprofit, we were picking up these abandoned houses. We were restoring them, selling them to first-time home buyers. And I'm paying the carpenter, the painter, I'm paying the utility company. We made a decision early on, we're paying taxes. And so we did. And uh, we're, as a not-for-profit housing organization, we are tax exempt. And at Hudson River Housing and now at Repco, we've made it... Uh, our, our business to uh, you know pay uh, taxes and we're one of the largest taxpayers right now in the city of Kingston um, with some of our various properties but how and who pays taxes is always a, a moving game and again I think feeds to the complexity so uh, but, so I want to just make sure I heard what uh, you said Scott so there's currently 30 municipalities across the country that are uh, 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 have started a UBI okay great that's it very interesting to see uh, the kind of study and, and, and outcomes that uh, we can glean from those experiments. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting too how um, you know there's a there's a great variety in the different kind of sections that they're looking at. So um, you know, no one's doing like a you know universal basic income across the city kind of thing. Although you know there is discussion about like choosing like a small town somewhere you know and then making it universal there. You know, and basically it's. And I hope that some really small town mayor will step up and be like, hey, I want to be that person. And, uh, you know, we can do that here. But so far, there's been kind of segments like, you know, Stockton, they did a, let's say, semi-wider kind of look where, you know, they looked at those below the median income and people could apply to be part of it. And then they randomized people from those applicants. And so you have people who were extremely poor, but also up to the median income or half the median income there um, in, in Stockton. But there's also like in Jackson, Mississippi, they looked specifically at single black mothers. And they, um, in San Francisco, they're looking at pregnant mothers and they're also looking at artists. So like basically for artists to see how that works and here in New Orleans, we are also launching our own here, and part of that will be looking at at-risk youth. And in Santa Clara County, um, they actually started a, a program of $1,000 per month for kids aging out of foster care so that they will receive this for a year after aging out of the system. And so it's, it's all these different components, you know, help paint this picture of how universal basic income will act because it will reach each of these segments instead of just like one at a time.
March, I am really curious to hear your idea of how this could happen in Ulster County. I, you know, I can't speak to a specific project. I just know we have a tremendous philanthropic investment in Kingston, like probably larger than anywhere else in the country. And so, you know, I wouldn't rule it out. I think there is interest in it. I have not had direct conversations with any of the philanthropists about this topic in years, but, you know, I wouldn't rule it out. I think it is a strong possibility. And, you know, I just think it would be a good a good investment given the other investments that philanthropy is making. My one concern really, and this has to do with all 30 projects, is like, measure it. You know, I'm a comptroller. I want to see the numbers. And I found the data from Stockton to be very persuasive. So I'm really hoping that Hudson, you know, that the other, you know, 29 mayors that are working on this, that if any project like this were to happen in Ulster, that we really would be keeping track of outcomes to some degree of something, because otherwise I think it's going to be hard to get a Romney-sized package that is national. That's just my thought. Actually, they, they have, um, they're trying to make it easier to do that so that um, there's, so the people behind uh, the Stockton project, uh, you know, and Tubbs is behind the Mayors for Guaranteed Income. And so they've actually set up a, a center at UPenn and there's you know essentially kind of like a centralized location for for the the data and stuff to be collected and even like combined and mixed and so then basically there's like a let's call it a hub at UPenn attached to each of the pilots and then each of the pilots involves like someone locally or multiple someone's locally like uh, you know through local colleges and then those you know statisticians and scientists work with the um you know the hub at upan uh, through this so yeah each there's definitely data being gathered in each place and they're you know planning to learn from this from each one yay that makes me so happy i think that we've already seen a novo impact in our unemployment numbers i mean if you look at ulster kingston and ulster county are a single msa metropolitan statistical area we have much lower unemployment than the rest of the Hudson Valley. And if you look at the number of nonprofits and nonprofit jobs that are being driven by philanthropy, it's very, very large. And I think that's made an impact on our overall economy here in Ulster. I can't measure it. I don't know it exactly, but it's a huge investment and it really is helping the community at a very dire time. I was just going to suggest that as we look at measuring, um, which uh, I, I truly support as well, I think that UBI could have a tremendous effect on homelessness, which has been a problem that has, you know, been a scourge for this country for, you know, my entire career. And in addition to the humanity, moving the dime on the humanity of, uh, and becoming the country we uh, aspire to be and take care of everyone, the cost of homelessness to our medical, uh, healthcare, uh, law enforcement, mental health is just tremendous. And um, this type of a program, I think, could really significantly uh, move the dime on homelessness in America, something that we have simply not been able to do, in my opinion, uh, you know, for, for decades. And uh, it's, it's only grown worse. And uh, I think this could be very, very helpful. And then when we go to measure to really take a look at the societal costs that would uh, change dramatically if we uh, took care of homelessness. Yeah, there's actually a study, uh, you know, speaking of pilots, you know, it's really interesting to to look at the uh, Vancouver project that went on. So it wasn't UBI where everyone received a, a monthly income, but this was called the, um, it was uh, the LEAF pilot there in Vancouver. 
and they provided a lump sum cash grant unconditionally to homeless people, those experiencing homelessness, and it was $7,500. And as a result of that, they found that homelessness went down and actually people found housing faster. And because of that, there was less of a burden on the shelter system and it saved the shelter system $8,100 per person. So there was a, a net savings of $600 per person from just making sure that people had that money up front uh, without conditions. And so, yeah, that really does like, a, you know, it's a measurable impact. And that was only looking at the savings to the shelter system, you know, not looking at savings on like the medical system and things. And uh, you know, we also know from the, the, the Delphi Manitoba pilot in, of Mincom in the 70s in Canada, that found an 8.5% reduction in hospitalization from people receiving that guaranteed income there. So we know that this actually would reduce homelessness and would reduce the amount of burden on the healthcare system as well. And uh, I'd also point to, we know like the best deal of all is reducing child poverty because you know the calculation of child poverty is we spend over a trillion dollars per year on that. And we could absolutely easily you know, reduce that directly through like the child allowance programs. And we also know that every dollar spent reducing child poverty actually saves $7 down the line because of such a huge impact it has over the entire lifetime and just how damaging it is for it to be a child raised in, in poverty conditions. Yeah, I agree. There have been a number of studies that have shown these types of effects on healthcare costs, uh, reducing child poverty, reducing homelessness. The UBI would offer a tool that I think could really perhaps reduce homelessness in a way. So, so like things that we don't have the tools to reduce child poverty. We don't have, we haven't had the, the, the correct tool to reduce homelessness. And if we did, I think the studies that have been done could be, and then I we go back to what, what Marge said is about telling that story in an effective way to get the message out truly. People hear things like, you know, every dollar invested in child poverty will save $7 down the line, but doesn't seem to move the dime. Yeah, because people aren't really moved by data for the most part. And we're not moved by expenses later. I mean, it's not just health and human services. It's the same in infrastructure. We don't want to spend a dollar now that's going to save $5 later on cracked clay pipe or roof repair. It's an immediate gratification issue, I think, just that, you know, whatever money we're spending, we want to see the impact right now and things later, it's really hard to get people excited about it. Yeah. I mean, we're seeing that right now with the stimulus where like, you know, economists can say, look, we need to spend at least $5 trillion in order to save spending over $5 trillion. And then we're all like, oh, we can't increase the deficit by $2 trillion. Like you're going to save money to make sure you spend that money. But yeah, people just don't naturally look at things that way. Going back to homelessness, the challenge of distributing UBI to the homeless population would be the uh, the logistics, right? Like stimulus, they, they didn't receive stimulus because they don't have bank accounts. So Scott, do you know, do you know what is being talked about to tackle that? Yeah, so uh, this kind of thing was really part of Rashida Tlaib's bill and Pramila Jayapal's bill, the ABC Act was like, that was the most universal, that was fully universal, and it was $2,000 per month. And they were really trying to reach everybody. So part of this too was the postal banking and, and debit cards and, you know, making sure that going out and like getting people into the system. And it, it's so much easier to get these people who are unbanked 
and outside the system if there's no conditions and like it's seen as it's theirs. It's just a matter of connecting them. And I think that also it would make it so much easier for like nonprofits and stuff who are focused on those falling through the system to connect those to them if there's already money waiting for them there and they just have to make sure that that they help those people. Also, I, I think it's important just to consider again, like how much easier it would be to find the people who need extra assistance if you make sure that they have that, if everyone has that floor. So, you know, there's people who, who only have like money problems. Like if they only had money, then they could solve their own problems. And then there's people who, if they had money, they still going to have problems. And, but you can't actually tell it just in general, who only needs money and who needs more than money. So if you make sure that everybody has money, then those who only need more than money are, there's a fewer reduced population of those and they're just much more easier, uh, you know, to find. I compare it as like, uh, you know, imagining if, if you didn't know how many people in a room could, would uh, drown or not, if like it started filling up with water. And so, you know, the best way to do is to make sure everybody has life vests. And, you know, if, if, if somebody is unable to swim, then they've got that life vest and you could actually see that they're, that, that they're the ones who need more help and everyone else, you know, if you don't need a life vest, whatever, you're fine, you can swim fine, then they actually are more able to help the people who need help. So, yeah, I think part of this, too, is is that if nonprofits and organizations focused on people, um, I hope that they could see it in their mission statements that, you know, it would be really beneficial to their own mission statements, to meeting them if everyone had income so that they could really focus on those that need more than that. When I was at the Community Foundation, we did a ton of work in food security, you know, and there had been a bunch of food desert mapping work and some identification of areas where there really were no grocers and, and, you know, there's transportation problems and access problems. But the more I worked on the problem, I realized it's not a food desert problem, right? It's a money problem, you know, and I'm really in the same place now on this housing thing. You know, it's, it's not just that we have a shortage of housing, which we do. Because uh, we really haven't built built as we should have, but it's a money problem, <laughs> you know. So a lot of these problems that we're looking at as philanthropic problems are really come down to a wealth inequity issue, and until we solve that problem, we're not really going to make an impact in some of these areas. The pandemic, I think, really helped highlight this this mismatch, and you know, it's it's just crazy. You can look at these photos and videos of people in just giant lines for food banks, and yet, you know, it's not like the stores are empty. You know, there's plenty of food in the stores, but people aren't able to go to the stores, so they go into the food banks. And it's like, well, come on, let's make sure that people have the money to go to the stores, and actually makes jobs and it gets that local circulating, you know, locally instead of relying on the free food infrastructure through um, you know, the food bank system. We never should have looked at the food bank system as some kind of solution for poverty. Like people standing in lines for food banks is a sign of a broken system, not something that we should celebrate and you know, get more resources towards. Like let's make sure the resources get to the people so that they don't need the food banks. And then if there's you know, still people who need food banks, well then great, but it's gonna be a lot, lot fewer, fewer people than right now. I wonder also if this pandemic has shifted the psychology of poverty in people, you know, like there has been like so much stigma attached to being low income or being poor, 
And so many of our welfare programs are kind of based on that, you know, like poor people are poor because they can't make the right decisions. So we have to make decisions for them. We're going to tell them what food to buy, what food they cannot buy, and uh, so forth. I am wondering if there is a shift in that, that anyone can be, can lose income now, right? And Kevin, you've, you've battled this pretty much all your rough code life. You know, people in Woodstock, you know, they, they are progressive and they are for human rights, but they don't want low income housing in their backyard. So do you know, is there any shift in that? Well, the shift that I think we see is the, is the uh, increase in awareness across the board from in our political leaders and business owners and, uh, and people who ha- are simply experiencing health issues, loss of job, loss of income in, in, in ways that they had and, and nothing opens a person's eyes as quickly as, you know, a little uh, disaster hitting close to home. So um, I think more people have seen struggle themselves individually in their families and their work, you know, their colleagues. And this brings more people to the table and more people today are certainly, you know, talking about housing than ever before. And, um, you know, we use a simple construct that home matters um, and it really matters. Imagine trying to navigate the pandemic and stay safe without a home. But, you know, today our home has to be perhaps our workplace. It's where we're schooling our children and God forbid it's where we're uh, convalescing when we get sick. Uh, all in addition to being that, you know, quintessential roof over our head. So homes are very important. Um, there's all kinds of you know, things that, that that homes can and should be. They're not always, you know, uh, accessible, nearby to amenities, um, healthy, energy efficient, and now with climate change, resilient to overcome climate change, flooding, other types of things, fires. So very, very important. And I do think that there is shifting uh, mindset about the various needs. And again, I think, yes, income has been at the, it's, it's the reason we can't afford our housing. It's the reason people are homeless. It's the reason that people, if they had more income, they wouldn't have to go to the, the, the food bank, they'd go to the grocery store. Daycare, I mean, the Alice Report, I think has been a, an important tool that's come out, United Way across the country has produced and looked at, you know, the five basic things, housing, uh, daycare, transportation, healthcare, and we don't have enough money. So here in Ulster County, you know, four out of 10, 42% of people struggle in poverty or in Alice. They're, they're uh, employed, but they're income constrained. And, uh, you know, you move into cities, uh, it goes up to 60%. And so that's, that's us. And in, in cities, it's, it's the majority of us. And so we are seeing increased awareness and let's see what we can do with this increased awareness and what kind of programs we can come up with. So Kevin mentioned that, that people are working at home in a, in a bigger way than they were before. And I think that's a good opportunity just to mention that, you know, there's a lot of people who are doing unpaid work at home in a way that, um, you know, people were already doing and now it's to an even greater degree, calling it like the, the she session, as far as the, the number of women who have, exited the labor market to, you know, be working at home in a way that, you know, you have to, like somebody has to to do that care work and it was always being ignored and it's still being ignored. And I think that it's, you know, now is the time during a pandemic really to finally recognize that that's extremely important work being done that really should be enabled and supported it is certainly recognized in a way that, you know, we've never done before and that we really need to start doing.
we see that the job losses are impacting women. I've noticed, you know, I have a few women who work for me and they are working in unbelievably challenging environments. I mean, it's so funny. Uh, one of the senior auditors taped audio or videotaped a presentation. You know, I was doing a presentation in a hearing. She was listening. She went to tape it, not at my request, just of her own accord. And later I said, oh, I wish I had a tape. And she said, well, I have one, but and she sent it over to me and she has a baby screaming in the background. But that is the perfect example of exactly what she's dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. She has no childcare. She's working in unbelievably difficult circumstances. You know, a kid here, a kid here, a laptop here, and mom upstairs who needs help. And I've said to people like, I literally, I expect less. We're in the middle of a pandemic. It's really difficult. I don't wanna lose my great team. This system, like people are experiencing in a way that never have before, and that's the problem is that people assumed that we had a safety net that was there for them and would help them, and that it was always for those people, not them, and now so it's them, and then they're realizing that it's not there at all, and it was all basically a lie, and what now? And I think that's the combining with like the rising um, popularity of the checks. I think those go hand in hand that we've seen over the course of the pandemic that, you know, UBI has actually become more popular to the point that actually a solid majority now uh, approves of it. $2,000 a month stimulus checks are 65% support and that, you know, 80% support for just another $2,000 check. So like, you know, people are saying, just get me the money. And I, I don't need to go through all those other crap that may or may not work. Just get me the money. And I think that, yeah, those two go hand in hand. And I think that that's going to, you know, stick around and even just continue to grow. It was amazing to see the different states struggling to address the ginormous jump in unemployment claims and to realize just how old those systems are, you know, code that had been developed in the 1980s. We really had not invested, you know, as a collective country, right, all these states in the infrastructure needed to really get support to people quickly. I was surprised how fast the first check came out of the federal government and it showed us, hey, wait a minute, we could get money to people. Like that's bogus to say like, oh, we couldn't do, uh, 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 you know, all of a sudden like there's checks showing up in people's bank accounts. Like, oh yeah, you guys get taxes from us, you know. It was amazing to see how fast it happened once we wanted it to happen. Yeah, after Trump signed the $600 stimulus bill, it was three days later that people were receiving checks. Like it was that fast because they already had the people in the system from the previous check. And so, yeah, that's just a perfect example of how quickly we can do it if we just decide to do it. Right. There was some leakage, right? We saw checks going to people overseas and they cast a wide net in generating their lists or whatever they did. And I'm fine with that. You know, again, let's just make sure everybody's covered. And then after the fact, you can figure out, all right, well, it turns out that this check went here or there instead, and let's fix that. And, oh, this person obviously was earning weight, uh, you know, a very high amount. So let's increase their taxes. I'm all for the wide net. <laughs> yeah, it was very difficult for people who don't, who aren't banked, you know, who are unbanked or underbanked, really tough. It was exciting to see that some of these uh, recurring stimulus bills were actually starting to look at that and say, okay, how do we cover the unbanked? So, you know, besides activating postal banking and getting using debit cards and stuff, there's also like, well, you know, let's meet people where they are. Like, so if people are using PayPal or Venmo or Cash App, like let's include those as ways of people being able to get 
their money. And I think that's definitely, you know, something that, that should be utilized in, in future, you know, payments. I found for myself over the last two years, I've given a lot of money to individuals who were in need, as opposed to making that, you know, contribution, say to an arts organization, I'm just using that as an example, but where, you know, it's, first of all, the, the, the tax benefits of donating to a nonprofit are insignificant for many people now with the doubling of the standard deduction, but also just the need seems so great. And the distance between writing a check to an organization and have it actually getting to somebody who's trying to, you know, get a hotel room for the night or go shopping for food or clothes. So I know I've seen a lot more of that. And as I've done that, I've had to learn and adopt all these payment technologies that I've never used before. You know, okay, yeah, I had a PayPal, but I didn't have Venmo and I didn't have Zelly and I didn't have Cash App. Yeah. So that's been a whole learning curve. And it does really get money places quickly to people who can use it right away. It's really interesting to see how many Cash App, you know, uh, account names are like in people's bios on Twitter. It's it's just people say like, this is me and here's my Cash App, you know, <laughs> it's like making it that much easier. And it's also interesting to see like the various, um, just in general, cash has become much more recognized as just the go-to way to go. Like, so even celebrities are coming out and being like, you know, I'm going to get cash to people for this and that instead of like going, okay, let's figure out some other way to do this instead of, you know, just get people money. And so it's interesting to see like on a kind of a grassroots level that that's happening to a greater degree too. something completely unrelated to UBI because I have this opportunity. I've always wanted to ask you this for a long, long time. So, you know, Robco is affordable housing maker, but you also have such great taste. And this has always been a really big mystery to me. Like in New York City, like public housing is horrible. The design, you know, it, it's just really almost designed to make you feel depressed, you know, but Rubco, especially the lace mill, that's like a very, you know, like luxurious condo almost, you know. So I've always thought that high taste is expensive. Therefore, you cannot use it for housing, affordable housing, but you've proved, proven it wrong. How do you do that? And how can we make that happen everywhere? I'll say two things. Hey, I grew up in rental housing and I was always a little bit embarrassed by that aspect and most of my friends lived in single family homes and so the idea that stigma comes with poverty and and, and that and secondly and, and perhaps you know far more important is, um, is something that you sort of mentioned and that is that uh, public housing in particular and other affordable quote unquote or the low income housing the other side of the track so there was always this built-in opposition so starting um, as we did with some of the affordable housing and homes that we were doing in Poughkeepsie on the north side, historic, and to be able to bring back historic, you know, there was a lot of interest in Poughkeepsie, particularly on the south side and the Victorians. And 
I tried to bring as much uh, historic uh, aesthetic to the north side. They were simpler buildings, but they were they were indeed historic. And basically, we you know it was just a simple premise that we're given the kind of opposition to affordable housing, we could ill afford to build or design or bring anything other than really well designed, tasteful is your word, affordable housing. I'll tell a story at Woodstock Commons. Uh, you know, the day or when we were finished, we were we were planning a ribbon cutting, and I hired. I, I wanted to have a tent, so I brought in uh, my friend Scott Harrington, who uh, owned uh, Save On Rental. And Scott was going to come up and meet me on a Friday afternoon to set up the, you know, to place the tent, make sure we had the right side. So he, I was there at Woodstock Commons a Friday afternoon. He drove in and he got in and he thought, oh wait a second, this can't be Woodstock Commons. It's too nice. He drove back out to the front of the property, saw the sign, Woodstock Commons, came back in. He said, Kevin, and he finally saw me. Oh, my God. So, yeah, I think because of that, you know, trying to do, uh, very proud of our Energy Square now, achieving net zero for living, LEED, platinum certification. We can, in particular, um, as, as a nonprofit, we can lead. Um, we can aspire and we can lead, and, and that's the path we've chosen to uh, create affordable housing that communities can be uh, proud of, that people that live there can be proud of. You know, I have had the good fortune to walk many a 10-year-old into their uh, room of their own in a home that they, their parents for the first time owned. You know, there's no better feeling in the world. And the kind of pride, the American dream that comes with some, some of this. So, uh, yeah, we've made a very conscious effort to uh, seek the funding necessary to build uh, really quality, well-designed uh, uh, affordable housing. I tried to get Kevin once to look at something that was really low quality. The, there were like, I think it was like 50 units of housing on Barman Road in Kingston, abutting this park and abutting the Metro building, which Rupco had already been invested in. Um, and it went for sale. I think it was a million eight or it was a really low price. <laughs> so I called Kevin and the bids were due the next day. So there was no time. I'm like, Kevin, Rupco should buy this. And he's like, it's built so poorly. It's the kind of housing that gives affordable housing a bad name. That's what you said to me, Kevin. Yeah, though I, I will say that we have watched and witnessed now a lot of our uh, naturally occurring affordable housing be bought up. And it's, you know, housing is being treated as a commodity investment vehicle. And we've lost too much of it, I think, to that, um, both in the single family realm. We've had REITs across the country go in and buy a lot of single family homes. And so we're starting to uh, rethink and, and wonder about, you know, our, our ability as some of our brother and sister agencies across the country have done, and that is to move into the more of the naturally occurring, gain ownership, become good stewards, add elements to it. So uh, perhaps we've made a, a mistake or two along the way as well by not taking advantage. I wasn't saying that it was a mistake. I was really just speaking to like kind of the quality, you know, that Rupco's has such a quality history and reputation. And I think that's really important. We have had 500 units recently flipped from E&M management to a new owner. The new owners, the principals, you know, are Hudson Valley people, and they have short-term investors that have to be bought out. I, I'd love to talk to those guys to say, like, can you figure out a tenant ownership buyout for the short-term investors? Like, is there something cool that could happen here? Because it's scary to see what's happening with those those properties. And the one property in that portfolio, they didn't buy Sunset Gardens. 
I went over there to help a friend move out probably six weeks ago now. And I literally got in my car and I just bawled. It was so trash. I, I couldn't believe it. The front door of the apartment building didn't close. It's the middle of winter and it's just been so degraded. And we know that those owners just have not invested there, but it, it really is. It's a horrible situation. I don't know how many units are over there at that complex, but we've lost a lot of housing in Ulster County, both to short-term rentals and now to these real estate investors. It's, it's squeezing us big time. It's a question that my board considered this morning. And uh, so, you know, we're going to look, we're busy. We're working throughout the Hudson Valley now. And, and uh, um, the challenge is tremendous. It really is. The calls that I get on a weekly basis from folks that uh, the kinds of struggle that people face, um, and it's about loss of income. Last week, it was a gentleman who was in a, was hit, hit by a drunk driver, completely disabled. Now will never be able to work again. So there's, there's just that, the, the, the need out there is tremendous. And, uh, you know, we're trying to do what we can and uh, open to new ideas, uh, which is why I really appreciated being invited to this discussion today. I'm very encouraged, I think, by uh, this kind of thinking, new thinking, uh, bringing new ideas, new ways to, uh, to tackle some of, unfortunately, age-old problems. Just want to emphasize like the quality uh, of housing as part of this discussion, too, because, again, so much of these things exist along a spectrum. And so, you know, I guess people in general will think if someone, you know, it's like binary, they're either housed or unhoused. And there's not enough appreciation for the fact that you can be housed and be miserable as far as like the housing goes. It can be just terrible housing conditions, but you have housing. And, you know, that's not good enough to just say that that someone is housed especially if they're basically trapped there and unable to move because like no one else will accept their vouchers or maybe that's the housing that they have, that's the public housing and there's no other choice. We got to look at this in, the, in a bigger, more broad uh, way. Absolutely. Those intangible values and qualities, they really do make a big difference in the end, in dollar terms as well. You know, if you lived in a public housing where you just don't really feel good about, it, then you don't take a good care of it, and it, you know it gets dilapidated and it becomes dangerous. So, you know, hopefully, policies like UBI and other cash programs will lead us to uh, not just secure floor, but more quality of life for everyone. So, well, thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. And March, I will be paying attention to, you know, UBI pilots in Ulster County. I hope that happens. Okay. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah. All right. Good luck. All right. Well, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah. Thanks for planning this, Keiko. Nice meeting you, Kevin. Thanks all. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You can find more information on the Ulster County UBI pilot on the county office website, ulstercountyny.gov. Kevin's organization is Rupco, R-U-P-C-O Marsh Gallagher can be reached through the county office at controller.ulstercountyny.gov. Scott Santon's website is scottsantons.com, S-C-O-T-T-S-A-N-T-E-N-S.com, and his Twitter handle is scottsantons, one word. Today's episode was edited by Olivia Menadesi. Intrinsic is a production of Forge Collective, an alliance of creators for radical honesty. Many thanks to John Notar for contributing original music. If you liked what you heard, 
please subscribe and consider making a tax-deductible donation at forgeartcollective.org. Thank you for listening, and tune back in in two weeks.